Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies, sort of. And this week we're going to be looking, as the reason I say that is this week we're looking at guilty pleasure movies. Uh, my name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And, and I'm bring- Ross. Oh, sorry. Yes. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Okay. Already, I'm already ruining it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so we do have a guest, and his name is Ross, as you probably all gathered. Uh, yeah, so welcome, Ross. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Now, my latest exposure with you is a YouTube video where you forced your friends to watch all of the high school musical films. So I feel like you are the right person for this job today. <laughs> yeah, and I. I, I sort of a sommelier of film that's what i consider myself to be you know a tastemaker that's a good name for a channel ross the tastemaker that's pretty good i don't know about um, that the connotations like could be unpleasant maybe maybe have like a series though was like the tastemaker episode one and it's like i don't know what the where the show goes from there but it's a good title it's a good title for sure mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah you were I, I, I don't know why it didn't dawn on me to ask you sooner because I was kind of going through a couple names and then all of a sudden it just fell in my lap. I was like, Oh, it's, it's perfect. Hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you could make it for this one. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So, so yeah. when you guys think of, cause I, I think this concept of guilty pleasures is it's kind of a hard one to sink your teeth into, at least for me. So when you guys think guilty pleasure movies, what are you, what's going through your head? What's your process? What makes that, um, that criteria? Well, it's funny. Cause I do think people sometimes take the concept like too seriously in like even a defensive way where I see people tweet stuff like, I don't believe in guilty pleasures. I don't feel guilty about liking anything. It's like, it's just a fun way to talk about movies. Relax. It's not like a manifesto we're writing here. Um, that said, I did try to think about the question somewhat, not just in terms of like movies that I enjoy that I think are kind of bad, but movies that I think are, I have to defend morally that I enjoy them, that they're not just bad in an inept way, that, that it's like, it's like crass that I would enjoy something so vulgar, um, which definitely comes through, I think, in both of my picks. <laughs> yeah, I would say for me, I, I think of a guilty pleasure movie as something that I would never recommend it to someone to watch as a movie. Like I couldn't, I couldn't do that to a person, but I (laughs) love trash and I know that I will get an immense amount of enjoyment out of the dumbest, dumbest thing you could possibly encounter. I will just have a great time with it. It's more about the experience. I think it's a movie that I wouldn't say is good on like a formal analytical level, but I would say like, it offers an enjoyable experience. And I would, I would say like consistency is part of it too. Not like, Oh, I'll have a couple drinks and watch a silly movie. And like, I've seen a lot of forgettable bad movies and like boring and kind of cheap and lazy, but the ones that I consider like guilty pleasures, they stick with me. Yeah. That's a good, good definition. I I had a tr- tough time kind of thinking of good guilty pleasure movies. And I was thinking, I was like, like what are we looking like movies that most people would consider not good movies i would think and then so i'm like well independence day is kind of cheesy so it's like maybe i'll go with independence day and my wife is like what no you're not you love that movie you genuinely love that movie i'm like yeah that's true <laughs> so i don't know and independence I- day that one's only considered 
but like, I mean, I don't particularly care for it, but it's only considered like a bad movie in like really film centric circles. True. If you mentioned to like some guys at a barbecue, like, oh yeah, Independence Day, that's a great movie. They're like, yeah, that's awesome. Mm. You know, like it, it's kind of that disconnect too, in terms of wit, when we talk about um, how movies are perceived by film nerds versus like normal people. Like there was that tweet about if you tweet, that Seven Samurai is your favorite movie. People will think your taste is kind of basic. But if you say that to your coworkers, they'll think you just made up a movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's true. <laughs> so yeah, that's a good point. Mm. Yeah. So really, I didn't know. <laughs> I just came up with some stuff. I don't, I don't know what's considered yeah. a guilty pleasure movie. We'll figure it out that's as fair. we go. Yeah. I mean, you're if you're bending the rules in terms of what counts as a guilty pleasure, I'm definitely bending the rules for one of my picks about what counts as a little moment because it's <laughs> it's really not. But we'll mm-hmm. get into that one. Um, That's fair. On that note, should I should I start us off? Right. I was just thinking. I can't remember who said they were starting. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, give it a go. No, it's me, and we're starting with uh, the 1981 animated classic, Heavy Metal. Uh, this film is an anthology of different horror and science fiction themed stories that are ostensibly linked by this green orb that's like this manifestation of evil that floats in and out of all the stories and, you know, corrupts. But they're really linked more by a sensibility of a horny 14-year-old boy. Uh, every scene is defined by extreme violence and uh, excessive nudity and specifically uh, women nudity and specifically boobs specifically boobs that are drawn bigger than my head like it's like comical and one of the segments is uh involves this like 18 year old nerdy kid who's voiced by uh john candy a lot of the cast is actually sctv people from around that time who gets i guess sucked into like a black hole or something and transported to a fantasy wonderland where he's also his body is transformed from this gawky 18 year old to like this six foot buff you know, barrel-chested, masculine hero, and he goes on adventures fighting monsters and evil priests and having sex with buxom women. Um, and there's one scene in particular that I think sums up both this short and the whole film the best, which is uh, his lady companion is lying on the ground waiting for him to make love to her. And it's a shot of her from like chest up, comically large breasts that take up like 70% of the frame. And you just hear in John Candy's internal monologue, looking at her going, she had the most beautiful eyes. And I like this for a couple of reasons. One, it's a genuinely funny line. And two, you get John Candy saying it in that perfect John Candy voice, and it really sells it. But I think this actually gets to the core of why this movie works as well as it does. Because as I said, it's a fantasy made for horny 14-year-old boys but it is not made by those 14-year-old boys. It's made by mostly men, but adult men who presumably are a little bit more mature than the audience they're ostensibly making it for. And I think that's reflected in the film, which has a little bit of a sense of humor about a lot of what it presents, that even though it's you know, a very shallow male fantasy, um, very male gaze movie, that is pretty openly objectifying every woman that uh, falls on the camera, there's something about the tone that has this goofy like sort of mentality of a teenager that it weirdly feels kind of innocent in how simple and basic it is that I'm not going to say it like undoes the male fantasy elements of it as it certainly doesn't, but it makes them feel a lot more harmless than they otherwise would. As much as the camera is uh, sort of uh, taking in 
uh, naked women in a very sort of erotic way, it doesn't feel like it's mean-spirited or leering. And I really, really feel that there's technically a sequel to this movie that was made in 2000, creatively titled Heavy Metal 2000, that has many problems, including ditching the anthology format, which is a mistake because none of these stories are good enough to sustain a feature narrative. But it also doesn't have that fun comedic tone and it feels like mean-spirited. So the first heavy metal, even though it's kind of juvenile and trashy, I think you can have fun with it and laugh along with it. The sequel, you just feel gross when you watch it and it's just mean and ugly. And you really feel that difference. And it's moments like this that I think make heavy metal work so well in that regard that it gives you the goods in terms of like, yeah, if you want a horny fantasy for 14 year old boys, everything you're gonna want is here but it has enough fun with it to not just be that and to be have a little bit more wide appeal than just that very specific time and why I think I still enjoy this movie even though I'm not in that target audience anymore. So that's my first pick. Nice. I just watched this uh, <laughs> for the first time this weekend. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's You loved it is what you're telling me. It's interesting. I do agree with the with the comedic tone, though. And the other thing that kind of when you were talking popped out to me is that one story on the spaceship with the robot who's like the womanizer robot. And mm -hmm. his friends always talk about how he's always hitting on women and picking up women everywhere they go. But it's just like this, like Johnny Five robot. It's not even a human robot. No, yeah. And he's a big and ladies man. Eugene Levy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's also the one that whole short the main conflict is about them getting high on space cocaine and trying to park their space cruiser <laughs> like <laughs> yeah and yeah i really do this like i mean i don't think you enjoyed the film quite as much as i do i'm getting that vibe from not quite <laughs> well it was just that's it was just pretty scattershot i don't and keep in mind this is the first time i've ever watched it so i don't have like the Any memories nostalgic. of seeing it as a 14 yeah. year old boy <laughs> that's fair um funny enough my dad showed me this movie so you know i don't know how that complicates the psychology of it but there you go um yeah i don't know i don't see how you cannot love a movie that begins with like a spaceship opening and it's in orbit around a planet and it's very dark and atmospheric and out of the cargo bay comes a flying cadillac with an astronaut driving it and then a radar rider <laughs> kicks in on the soundtrack and it's like this is amazing this yes. is what's all the building to baby <laughs> walt disney drew his funny little mouse he had no idea how good animation would get <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah and Ross, the styles heavy metal yeah oh i have not i have not seen it um i have heard of it many times and it, it kind of strikes me as one of those movies where you you see it as a kid and it kind of like re rewires your brain chemistry or you just don't see it. And then you watch it and you're like, what, what is this? Which seems to be the <laughs> spectrum of experience on this podcast as well. So I, I think if I were to watch it now, I don't know that I would get much out of it besides I'm, I'm a huge John Candy fan. So I'm always down for that. Like any weird Canadian comedian stuff I'm, I'm always down for, but uh, you got to do it for him. He's hilarious in it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a part in that section where like the villain is like laying out this deal to John Candy's character he can make about, you know, ways he can save the day. And he's like, and if we fail and the guy's like, and then you die, she dies, everybody dies. And Candy's internal models like sounded reasonable to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so good. Oh, yeah. I love this movie. Yeah. It sounds like they're having fun with it. Like 
the concept and that kind of sci-fi anthology. I feel like we don't see enough sci-fi comedy stuff lately. That's a good point, Again, yeah. Especially in animation. Animation is pretty much the realm of, like, for sci-fi stuff, it's a lot of, like, adventure and, and fantastical kind of stuff. But I feel like there's an opportunity for... Um, I haven't seen it, but, like, Red Dwarf is like that, I presume. Kind of like a comedic sci-fi thing. Right. I haven't seen Red Dwarf. Yeah, but... I don't. I, I haven't seen it, so I won't comment on what it is or isn't. But, uh, you know, that, that's, like, one of the few sci-fi comedy properties. And I'm sure I'm, Heavy Metal is not overtly a comedy, I'm guessing. But, <laughs> I mean, you know, from a certain perspective, yeah. But um, uh, Some of the shorts definitely lean more one way than the other. Some of them aren't funny okay. at all. But, uh, right. And I think that even shows in like talking about the nudity for it, for example, like it's full of boobs, but I don't think it's ever erotic, nor do I think it's trying to be. It's more the mm. spectacle of like giant breasted women than it is actually trying to be anything that's sexy. And I think that actually is like important. Yeah, there's something again, very like, yeah. Conan the Barbarian to it, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. This story in particular really leans on that. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's a, a good summary of it um great soundtrack too although for a movie called heavy metal you wouldn't think it'd be a journey song but no <laughs> it is what it is <laughs> yeah and i like how it's the animation styles for each story are just slightly different too um mm -hmm. like they they still have a pretty good consistency but there's just a little bit like some are a little bit more uh rough bashki-esque and something or yeah and there's there's an interesting it's been a while since I've watched the full thing, but there's an interesting thing too with like the weight of the movements. Like it's not as, it's not super fluid, but it feels, I guess this is kind of a pun, but it feels heavy. Like the way characters move and like when they hit, like it's not the most graceful animation. It's pretty sluggish. It's not uh, super advanced, but I think it has an appeal. And frankly, for when it came out, early 80s i mean i guess at that point you're having the uh not the disney renaissance yet but you're having competition to disney in north america so they're not the only game in town but for the time it was made for the low budget it was on because it was a fairly cheap um production i think it looks really good for what it's working with um but again i'm going from from memories that might be nostalgia uh, tinged it's possible if i were to just watch it fresh and be like oh this is pretty not that good looking but <laughs> Um, and to answer your question, Ross, um, sci-fi in animation now is used to tell the story of the movie that influenced other animated movies. That's its mm, purpose at this true. point. Right, right. And TV, you get comedy with like Rick and Morty. But uh, yeah, I guess I overlooked that because I, you know, try to. That's uh, fair. Because yeah. <laughs> nothing yeah. good comes of talking about Rick and Morty, as good of a show yeah. as it is. <laughs> Once the fans got real weird, it's like, okay. Yeah, it's it's a show that I I love to watch, but don't like to talk about watching. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> that's a fair uh, fair point to make. Yeah, and I think it it's it speaks to how, especially in live action, science fiction is so expensive to render. I guess it depends on the type of story you're telling. Primer obviously isn't very expensive, but if you're doing any type of like uh, large scale science fiction concepts, it's so expensive that I think I wonder if on some level it's like, well, we can't spend all that money and then make it like a comedy. Because so even like the sci-fi films that do have comedic elements, it's stuff like Ghostbusters, which is technically a science fiction film, but the sci-fi elements are, they're there and they're prominent, but in terms of like the visuals of it, they're more in the background. It's very much immersed in a realistic, grounded, blue-collar setting. Um, but then they have proton packs. So, but it's like flavor. Mm. It doesn't dominate the uh, the screen. Yeah. Yeah. 
Sounds. I guess there's like the Orville too. If anyone still watches that, is that a, a thing? Point. Is that I still exists? Still That's still going? No, didn't they just make a spinoff too? I feel like I just saw I it was like think... like the the Orville New Horizons or maybe so. that was another Star Trek show. I can't tell anymore. Like Star Trek as an entity and the Orville is just sort of merged into one thing. Star Trek I see is who's blowing on the up right now. Like Star Trek is a on a comeback. And I, uh, so I think the quality Orville is quality. Quality. <laughs> <laughs> you know. I think I haven't seen a Star Orville Trek is... thing since. Sorry, go ahead, Ian. I was just saying I think they're trying to back on the new popularity of Star Trek with the new with a return mm. show mm. but i just watched a uh, strange new worlds a brand new series i watched the first episode like just before we started recording and it oh, was fantastic was okay <laughs> i am excited for that nice nice cool okay well cool. uh watch heavy metal it's got <laughs> lots of ladies with big boobies i'm sold <laughs> <laughs> thank god tell me twice <laughs> All right, Ian, I'll pass okay. it off to you. Sure. So again, like I said, I had kind of struggled with the idea of what the heck am I going to pick? Uh, that's a guilty pleasure movie. And so I was going to go, originally I was going to go with um, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, because I, a lot of people think the movie's bad and I quite enjoy it. But we just had our movie monster episode like not that long ago. So I decided to change it up and go with something completely different. So when I was thinking about it this way, I was kind of thinking about what kind of movies just aren't really my thing, that aren't really my jam. Um, and so I thought of Disney princess movies because <laughs> I'm like, I don't really care about like Frozen or Tangled or what's the new one in Canto, like hmm. whatever. Now, that being said, I'm not like against them. I'm just, just they're just not my thing. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, like it's not like I respect for what they do because I've got like I've got nieces and nephews that love to watch them and I'm I get it. But there is an exception here, especially with like the newer Disney movies, and that's Moana. So for some reason, that movie just grabs me. So I would say I don't know if this counts as guilty pleasure, but I'm going with it. So it's it's just something that's out of my wheelhouse, I think, that people wouldn't expect I would like, I guess, suppose. And so I was trying to think about why, like, what is it about this particular movie that works? And I think it's the music, honestly. And so the moment I picked is actually one of the songs in the, mo in the movie, which is the How Far I'll Go, which is where she's kind of singing about how she's being tied to her family and to her, uh, to her island, but she really just wants to go exploring the sea and how she's juggling back and forth between that and I, I don't know i just find that the songs in this movie especially that one are just really catchy and they just have a really good melody and it's maybe i'm a lin manuel miranda fan and i didn't know it right because he's he's the guy behind all these songs uh, but the other thing when i was watching this again uh for this podcast the other thing that I thought was actually quite interesting with this song in particular is how it moves the plot forward because it's usually with the Disney songs, they're used to either say something about the character or, you know, go through the character's inner monologue, what they're thinking. So you've got a better idea, but this one actually like transitions from one act of the movie to the next, all within the same song, because when she's singing about how she actually wants to go adventuring to the sea, 
there's a turning point in the song where she actually decides that she's going to go out and adventure to the sea and then she's on her boat and the next scene she's out on the sea so it's like the full transition happens and i can't really remember disney doing that with their songs like not taking the plot advancement to that level so i thought that's interesting too but also i just really like the songs some for some reason which is also different because i usually don't like the songs in disney movies at all they're kind of like the part you just get through but yeah interesting yeah um hmm i didn't know i don't i guess i never really clocked that you uh were a not a staunch i guess not disney fan but that it was something that was like i don't know you knew about yourself like these aren't for me i never thought about that um i mean hmm. pixar i love pixar i'm a huge massive pixar fan but mm-hmm well, I mean, it's funny because I was thinking as you were um, describing Moana, it's an interesting film because in terms of like the modern Disney animation that we say, if, let, we could kind of say started this era with like Tangled maybe. There's arguments you can make for other films in this era being more uh, sort of bold or daring in different ways like Zootopia for whatever its faults trying to make a sort of societal thematic critique right. or Frozen with... Um, you know, the way it really foregrounds more of a sisterly bond than any type of romance. Um, but, and Moana doesn't necessarily have like a, a, a sort of silver bullet thing you can point to in that way. I'm like, this one's why it works. It's, it's, it's fundamentally still formulaic. Yeah. It's very formulaic. Yeah. Like it's, it's every sort of nineties Disney Renaissance, like plot structure is in that movie, except a villain really. Like there is a villain, but not really like it's, mm-hmm. you know, um, but I think why it works so well is it just executes really strongly on those fundamentals that as you're watching it, you're not thinking about, oh, it's, I've seen this a hundred times before because it's so effective and fun at, at uh, going through those beats. I think one of the things you allude to, which is the, the music is really good and probably the best, like there's not like a showstopper, I think, in the soundtrack and the way that like let it go was a showstopper but consistently across the board there's not really any misses and frankly the fact that there's not one song that dwarfed everything is a strength in my opinion because it doesn't get overplayed ad nauseum and ruined that's a good point are you i don't don't remember moana too well i think of them of the more recent disney stuff moana is probably the one i know the least well i think i only saw it once when it came out and haven't really felt the need to revisit it since i do agree the music is all pretty good except for any song with the rock on it i truly don't know why they chose to do that i mean i do know but the the i think the one that the the your welcome song i don't know what it's called i assume it's just called your welcome but that where he kind of like raps that was just that never worked for me like in the theater i was just kind of doing just, just sort of rubbing the eyes and waiting for it to be over, you know. Just sort of like, okay, come on, let's. Uh, I, I kind of like that one. <laughs> like it's it's cute, but I, like I wouldn't listen to it sure. if I want to enjoy a music as a concept. Um, but you know, it offer I mean, it offers I think a certain guilty pleasureness to it, where I'm like, wow, he just he really can't do everything, can he? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I I um I musicals in general are pretty hit and miss for me. Uh, I say that even though like nine out of 10 musicals I watch, I'll be like, that was great. (laughs) Like I I say that every time, but the misses are far rarer than the hits. Yeah. 
High School Musical is, of course, the the upper echelon of any cinematic musical, especially Disney. I mean, we're if we're staying on topic, as Daniel but, now uh, knows, yeah, yeah, as he learned the hard way, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, in regards in regards to Moana specifically, I would say like that that's the one I could see. I think that one had kind of the the broadest appeal, I guess, of the modern Disney ones. So it had more of an adventure vibe to it. It had more of like, uh, I don't know, It as much as it was about like a Disney princess, it didn't feel like it had to be about how hard it is being a princess. It was about a more, you know, individual sense of like freedom and purpose and restoring balance and all that stuff is really good. Yeah, there's a good I like there's a good like um, ex- exploration of <laughs> exploration, right? Like because they're a seafaring people, right? They're they're. They live on islands and archipelagos. Um, and she's always drawn to this idea of being somebody who explores beyond and not wanting to be held back, which I think everybody's kind of felt at one point in their life, right? Where you kind of want to break away. So it's very relatable there. But there's something about that with the setting that just works really well. And I think mm-hmm. the songs do a really good job of capturing that that history behind it as well, too. So yeah. Well, it's it's like Dan said about, uh, you know, that you've seen these beats over and over again, but when they're executed properly, they still work, they still hit. And I think Moana, nothing about it particularly blew me away when I saw it, but I was never like, this is bad. This is a bad movie. This is lazy and boring. <laughs> like it, it does what it does well enough that it kind of sustains itself, I think. Yeah, it does. Have you seen like the new ones like Encanto or... Yeah, I didn't like Encanto. That no. really didn't do anything for me. I thought that one that one was actually like that's the first one I've watched in recent memory that I thought was actively pretty bad where it mm. was like I could see what it was swinging for and the ideas were just really really basic and like it the setting was contained like it was a very small scale in comparison to the others which I liked at first. And then I was about halfway through the movie. I was kind of thinking like, is this the movie? Is this it? This is as much Mm -hmm. as we're doing. And then, you know, there's a couple of twists that I thought just kind of struck me as like, that was the best idea they had. That that kind of thing. (laughs) It it, kind of has the vibe of like a Disney knockoff. It kind of feels more like a, like an early DreamWorks movie trying to be Disney. Gotcha. Like trying to reverse engineer the formula. And they do a whole thing with, you know, like they have like a, a cultural aspect to it. And it's kind of about generational trauma as well. And that stuff is like interesting on the outside. And then the actual execution of it is like, I guess bad things are bad. <laughs> it's very deep. I don't know. It doesn't have to be deep because it's a Disney movie for babies. True. So, but I mean, if you want to, but if you want to, I think if you want to pretend to have that kind of thematic depth, you should do a little more than be like, well, evil people are bad and magic and good people are good. It's like, all right, I don't know. I, it feels weird to walk away from a Disney princess movie or any Disney movie being like, what was I supposed to learn from this? Because that's not what they're for. But I know Encanto didn't really, uh, I feel like Encanto didn't find a good middle ground between just being like a fun adventure and having a point. It kind of, it was like a decent adventure that almost had a point. And I was like, ah, okay that's it yeah i only saw about 10 minutes of it with my niece that's and nephew, a good point Ian. I agree. yeah <laughs> <laughs> hi i've been here the whole time <laughs> it's seamless it's seamless how does he do it yeah 
it's all it's movie magic. <laughs> <clears throat> this is the third time in the last four or five weeks that as soon as I got on a Zoom call that was being recorded for a podcast, man. And it's like, perhaps not. <laughs> no, enough, enough for you. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, so. we're just about to move on to uh, Ross's, I think. Nice. I made it in time. Yep. Well, well, well. <laughs> All right. Which masterpiece so, are you going to grace us with first? I think I'm going to start. I'm I'm going to start with the uh, with what is I think one of the greatest sequels ever created, one of the most important <laughs> blockbuster films ever crafted by human hands, and really one of the best stories. Period. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about the Amazing Spider-Man Two, everyone's favorite Spider-Man movie of all time so i don't know if i need to provide a plot recap i feel like most people will know the story of this and frankly I mean, i've tried anyone... to <laughs> i've tried to recount the plot to people and there's about nine there's like eight or nine stories and they're all kind of smushed <laughs> together you got spider-man is trying to be spider-man you've got peter parker is trying to make his relationship with gwen stacy work he's also investigating his parents uh aunt may is a nurse <laughs> Harry Osborn has the goblin sickness. Electro is there. Rhino is also there. Black Cat is also there for some reason. Um, it's a lot of stuff. And that's kind of where the... Um, when I picked a moment from the movies I selected, I wanted to think of a movie, uh, a moment that sort of encapsulated the movie in general and, and what the, 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 the underlying tone of it is and the, kind of the most interesting aspect of it. So... Personally, I've always found this movie to be sort of a a monument to hubris because it came out in 2014. It was right when cinematic universes started looking like a viable thing. And of course, Sony smelled money. And as they always do, they they pounced on it like hungry kittens and they just threw everything into one movie. They're like, we're going to give Spider-Man his own universe. You, I'm sure you all remember the plans. There was going to be four Amazing Spider-Man movies. There was going to be a Venom movie, a Carnage movie, a Sinister Six movie, a movie where Aunt May is a spy in the 60s. Um, there was going to be a Silver Sable and Black Cat movie. They had so much stuff planned. And you can still see, I think, the remnants of that in the kind of movies they're planning now, where they're doing like a Craven the Hunter movie and a Madam Web movie. And of course, Morbius, the second greatest movie ever made behind this one. And it's... Where this culminates in The Amazing Spider-Man 2 is in a wonderful sequence where Harry Osborn, having succumbed to goblin sickness and going crazy, uh, teams up with Electro and rescues him from a secret laboratory inside of a mental hospital, and they attack Oscorp together, and they somehow get to the top floor of this high-security building, and they attack the new CEO, who I guess became CEO that day after ousting Harry Osborn. I'm not sure how the formal process works. They don't go into it. Um, <laughs> so after finding out that the key to curing his goblin sickness came from the Oscorp spiders, which gave Spider-Man his powers, um, Harry Osborn takes the new CEO down to this secret sub-basement. And this is the basement where uh, all of Spider-Man's supervillains' costumes are just sitting. They're just sitting in there and they're waiting. You got Doc Ock arms, you got vulture wings, you got the rhino suit. Venom symbiote was in there, but they cut it. Uh, Norman Osborn's frozen decapitated head was also going to be in there. They cut that, unfortunately. <laughs> God, I wish they had left that in. 
Um, so when they arrive in the basement, uh, the doors open, Harry's looking around, he's seeing all this stuff and he asks the CEO, like, what is all this stuff? And this, and the guy simply responds the future. So this is a, a very transparent trailer line B an absurdly obvious like sequel hint in a movie that is nothing but sequel hints and just begging you to come see more movies that haven't been made and frankly will never be made now um so this line gets funnier every single year just the further distance you get from the future meaning anything for this franchise and you know andrew garfield came back for no way home spoilers uh <laughs> and that was the only real amazing spider-man connection we've seen since then so I, I just love just the, the, like I said, the hubris of having characters in the movie outright look at the aesthetic trailers they have floating around this big basement and just being like, this is the future. This is what's going to happen. Because you, you can just feel the confidence because you know they felt like this is not going to fail. There's no way it's a Spider-Man movie. We're putting it all in there. The trailers, I remember I was, I was like, oh... I was like 12 when this movie came out. So of course I like, I loved it. I actually did have a period. It was 2014, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's just 12. making me feel like an old man. I'm sorry. I do. That's that a how lot. I feel uh, every week, Dan. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. But it's fine when you feel like an old man. It's weird <laughs> when it happens to me. <laughs> Look, as, as, as the youthful energetic one, I will, I will continue to say that I, I did have, I had powerful feelings about this movie when I first saw it. And there was like a yeah, good three years where I was kind of obsessed with it. And I was like, this is fantastic. Like, I thought it was legitimately amazing. And I would defend it to everyone. Were they the same um, kind of feelings that minute, Daniel no. had when he uh, no, wait. watched Heavy Metal? I just, re I, I just realized this has got 100% more embarrassing. I did my uh, calculations of age wrong. I was actually 16, not 12 when I saw this. <laughs> so I was like... Okay, that, I, that does make me feel better. Yeah, like I had a driver's license and I was still like The Amazing Spider-Man 2. It's the best fucking movie I've ever seen. My mistake. Uh, Damn it, Ross. I was, one, that's my one. That's my one. Uh, it, it, I have to, you have to grant me at least one. It's a PG-13 rule for Amazing Spider-Man 2. Uh, I will say, we can cut this part out, but they should, he should, to improve that line, they should have used their one PG-13. What is all this? The fucking future. That would have been great. That would have been a much improved line. That would have been good. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I just, I love, I love that they really thought they were doing something with this scene, with this movie, with this series. And it just boom, immediately just died so soon after. Yeah. That is very meta. <laughs> That's a well, very meta moment. To that end, there's something really like revealing about like, all of the villains are just like these hollow exoskeletons that can just be wheeled out free of character or motivation, you know, as they're if all they're in like... one building, right? <laughs> Everything right. comes from one. Every employee in there is potentially a supervillain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's nowhere else. Yep. One minute you're, you're scrubbing the toilet. The next you're Dr. Octopus and <laughs> you got to kill the Spider-Man because your boss told you to. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I really do like the more because I always thought that scene was just like garbage and hated it. But the more you describe it, it's like, man, it really is. It is almost depressing how um, transparent it is about how they feel about these characters where they're not characters. They're 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 basically just like IPs that they keep in a jar, you know. 
a franchise failing smash <laughs> um which is the thing is what's going to happen what eventually they're going to do is andrew garfield spider-man is going to fight the sinister six will be morbius craven tom hardy venom carnage uh michael keaton vulture and yep. i don't know who the sixth one madam webb i madam guess webb there you go yeah you know, she's presumably like, i think she's one of spider-man's allies and also she's like an old bag i don't know why they're casting like every all the casting in that movie is like really young like women and the only yeah. thing i know about madam webb is she's like 200 years old so mm-hmm. well they gotta make people pay tickets no one wants to go see some old lady sitting on a web no one wants I, to see that. That sounds it, amazing. It should have been Emma Thompson. Like, we all know it, but they're not going to do that. Sony is not going to make a good choice with their Spider-Man villain movies. No, it should have been, like, Vanessa Redgrave or somebody, like, really old. Like, you need to... Helen Mirren. <laughs> get the lady from Titanic who was old Rose. I'm sure she's dead, but if she wasn't, she'd be perfect. Just Weekend at Bernie's her. Screw it. Just <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. That's your Madam Web. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll see. Yeah. So you enjoy this movie though in some capacity. I enjoy it. I enjoy watching it. And I guess like on a certain level, I, I just think it's a really fun curiosity from this era. Like I think the most interesting superhero movies to me are ones that really represent the time they came out. Um, like the phase one Marvel movies, I think are all still pretty interesting, less so because they are interesting stories and present like really interesting characters, but more so just you can kind of see the experimentation. And now that everything's really refined and much more homogenous on their side. And then you've got like Justice League, the theatrical cut, which could not be more emblematic of like the studio scrambling to try to figure out what they could sell and that kind of thing. The stuff that feels very reactionary like that and Amazing Spider-Man 2 feels very much like we have to have our own Avengers and it's just going to be Spider-Man and they're all going to be in a basement. (laughs) <laughs> oh man it's so it's interesting that this came out in 2014 because in 2014 marvel was killing it it had guardians of the galaxy they had winter soldier the x-men had days of future past which was one of their best films and then this ball of garbage comes rolling out <laughs> yeah. like the biggest hero out of them all and you can't put together a cohesive film yeah. at all if they had mm-hmm. picked one movie of the seven that are in it like it might Preferably have been okay is the nurse but yeah 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 well, the obviously part of the movie is when like the, the hospital loses power but then it gets it back and it cuts stamp mage like all right everybody let's pull it together it's like you're not the head nurse yeah <laughs> what are you doing Can I, I will i will admit something rather embarrassing uh i i have to but i feel it's it's the right forum for it when i was a teenager i did in fact write my own version of what the amazing spider-man 2 should have been that's not embarrassing uh, yeah that's only I mean, embarrassing it, if what you wrote is worse and it can't i think be i think it's better uh because it, it wasn't like i'm gonna write my own it was like let me take all the individual elements of this movie like cut certain stuff rework certain stuff and i honestly think it like um spider-man 3 if you take the main villain and take them out you've got a more interesting story like if you take electro out of the amazing spider-man 2 you've got Harry Osborn and Rhino can just be like your heavy who he fights initially. You can have him like your, you want your big midpoint battle that can be in Times Square with Rhino and just do a whole sequence with that. You want your opening thing have it be him in the truck. He gets the Rhino suit. Harry Osborn's investigating the Oscorp stuff, cut the goblin sickness, obviously, but just have him like need to get in the suit somehow, have him want to get revenge on Spider-Man. Like 
the the individual i think there are individual things about the movie that work and moments and like if you describe the movie to people in broad strokes they'd probably be like that sounds pretty fun there's some good stuff in there but it's very much like intent versus execution and the execution of a lot of it feels very half-assed and kind of slapdash and frankenstein together and you can tell it doesn't feel like a lot of it was reshot which is nice i think a lot of modern comic book movies tend to feel like that you can kind of like pick out what stuff like okay you obviously shot that later that looks like a different like haircut completely like some of the avengers movies the later ones are really egregious with that like you look at tom holland's face and it's like months have gone by since like the last shot and then <laughs> but um yeah no i just think this this one is just such a fascinating mess that's fair you make a good case yeah. for it i mean a, a, not a good case for its quality but a good case for why it's worth uh yeah. studying and also i mean genuinely a very competently put together movie like, i think mark webb has a lot of visual imagination like it's very colorful it doesn't look bland like a lot of stuff does now it doesn't all look like it's on a green screen like the effects are genuinely still very impressive some of the electro stuff's a little shaky but spider-man consistently looks amazing in that movie he looks better than he's looked in any other movie and i just think it's wild that you have a movie that has like on the surface all the right things going for it and just like nothing about it works well it's funny because on twitter.com uh a couple months ago there was I've a period it, it was it's it's not a nice place but i was it was right before spider-man no way home came out and there was this groundswell i was seeing of like the amazing spider-man 2 was a secret masterpiece and it was slept on and it was it's like it, it's so much better than every and and not just defending it as like it's actually good it's but it's like it's actually like an tourist art driven movie yeah. and i felt like i was in bizarro land because that franchise is the most like corporate mandate franchise in existence for the first movie is like we got to after spider-man 3 was like people didn't like it and batman begins in the dark knight were popular it's like we need to make spider-man like dark and gritty and moody and then oh that came out the same year as the avengers actually chris nolan superhero movies they're that's dead this <laughs> franchise shared universe baby that's where the money is like they're the, the they're so transparent in that and and you're seeing you point out that to that effect that i was um i was stunned to see people reclaiming this movie as if it was you know, some just weirdo passion project that was uh, rejected by audiences and not a corporate monstrosity that was rejected by audiences. Because there is a difference. Yeah. This is not Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Halloween 2 is genuinely great. They got that oh, one God. right. The Twitter uh -huh. freaks were right about that one. <laughs> they were not right about Amazing Spider-Man 2, though. That movie's dog. I will always sing its praises. I will Halloween always. Too? No, Amazing oh. Spider-Man Two, obviously. <laughs> Every line delivery Dane DeHaan has is like comedic gold. That's it's true. It's like it's like he's, it's like he doesn't know he's in a movie. It's great. It's like he's never <laughs> said words before. Yeah, it's like it's You're his first time. Spider-Man. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's fantastic. There, there's so many things in the movie where you're like, yeah, they just, they just left this in. Yeah, Paul Giamatti's <laughs> entire performance is that they just they saw no reason to do another take or something different. They just <laughs> they just rolled with it, and you got to respect that. You got to respect the commitment to the vision. Mm. Maybe this is a masterpiece. No, <laughs> you know, I'm turning around on it. I'm starting to think you don't have to respect any of it. Hmm. <laughs>
you can study it from afar like you would like a global event you know or like a, a social sociological phenomena yeah it's worth studying but that doesn't mean it's good it was my 9-11 but in a good way see i wasn't gonna go there you <laughs> The two planes coming together, it's their parallels, is all I'm saying. I guess there is parallels there, technically. Yeah. Uh, Don't know why they chose to invoke that imagery for The Amazing Spider-Man 2, also. Another weird choice. And it's weird that the movie starts that way. A lot of plane crashes, yeah. A lot of plane... Not a good movie to watch on an airplane at all. No. Or if you have electric powers. No, well, you know yeah that's like discouraging discouraging if you've got sure. a gap in your teeth that you're really self-conscious about and then it's like oh he just had his electricity powers heal his gap why can't it do that for me just jump into a lake find some eels <laughs> i don't know where eels swim are they in lakes are they in uh, rivers or oceans yeah ian I'll... do you know where eels are primarily located pretty sure they're ocean bound okay that would make sense yeah so i'm out of luck i'm in lawn lake landlocked saskatchewan no mm. electric powers mm. for me no just planes <laughs> endless it's it's like in the matrix there are fields endless fields. <laughs> <laughs> oh cool. well okay i'm glad you like this movie Ross. <laughs> it's wonderful it's a wonderful time you know it's a good time with the, the, the it's a good it's it's like it's what cinema is all about it's a man dressed as a Spider-Man. He fights Electric Man. He fights Goblin Man. He fights Big Rhino. I mean, mathematically, yeah, it is the most awesomest one because he fights yeah. so many people. It's super badass, <laughs> dude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that movie. I will say, uh, I might sincerely prefer it to the first The Amazing Spider-Man because the first Amazing Spider-Man is more boring um it's probably a more competent movie in regard to being like tonally and narratively consistent but i just don't enjoy any of it mm, that's fair. It's, yeah. it's it's completely uh redundant and unnecessary and its existence made life worse because without, <laughs> it, we, without it we could have had a spider-man 4 which could have like continued to enrich the characters in the world but instead it just got thrown in the trash it'd be like if Ian, you mentioned Star Trek uh, earlier. Uh, if after Star Trek Five, they're like, ooh, we better just move on to next gen. And then we don't get Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country, which is a wonderful film with a great sense of character and story. That would have been sad. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, there is still a chance that we'll get Spider-Man 4 because Sony loves money so much. And I think there is no way there's a 0% chance that Toby won't come back for something. Like for a movie, I would put money on. Like I would feel very comfortable putting money on another movie. Garfield, I don't know, because I feel like they would just throw him into like the Sony verse and just make him fight Jared Leto or whatever. Which I would love to see. I would, I would genuinely just love to see like a press junket of Andrew Garfield and Jared Leto sitting together and just like the energy, just the the contrasting vibe. Weirdo theater kid and weirdo cult man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Jared Leto's just like hissing. I don't know. The thing is, like, and I don't mean to kick a guy when he's down, but that's that is the fate that the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies deserve. It's fighting Morbius. It would be a culmination of everything that came before, for sure. It would be tonally and quality-wise, like straight line. Mm-hmm. Yep, I approve that. Um, if, as long as you get Sam, Toby, and Dunst back, I'm 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 a happy man. Yeah. 
Oh, I think we better move on. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk about this movie for literally hours. <laughs> that's fair. Um, Ian, are you not a fan of the Amazing Spider-Man Two? Like that's been established. <laughs> <laughs> Heretic. I'm with you, man. I think it's quite bad. It um, okay, I think I'm. Uh, I'm next. Uh, in a way, I'm talking about a superhero movie. Uh, it's not officially a superhero film, but Rocky Four. Man, in in style, in substance, in tone, in aesthetics, it's a superhero film. So Rocky IV, do I need to explain why this film qualifies as a guilty pleasure? Um, On some level, I mean, on the most basic level, it's a very stupid movie, like most Rocky movies made after 1979, uh, debatably after 1976, um, until you get to Creed. But yeah, it's pretty dumb. It's pretty cheesy. It's very much an 80s movie in a way that the first Rocky feels kind of timeless. This one most definitely does not. Uh, and worse than that, and this is where I get into my version of guilty pleasure, where it's like, I feel morally bad that I enjoy this. It wallows in the worst kind of like empty boneheaded patriotism of like America number one and communism is evil and out to destroy us. And, you know, Rocky Balboa beats the evil Russian at the end and gives an inspiring speech where he says, if I can change and you can change, everyone can change. And presumably that's what causes the Soviet Union to dissolve in the Rocky verse. Um, so, and, and as has been pointed out uh, off camera by a friend of the show, Michael, it's a betrayal of the series core where the first Rocky very much positions Rocky versus Apollo Creed as Apollo wallowing in that kind of empty patriotism and then rocky is more sort of um simple and humble and uh respectful and that's like a core difference you know one comes out parading americana and that's that's viewed as like inauthentic and false but then this movie is actually actually that's awesome um (laughs) so all that is really bad and dumb but i find the film extremely entertaining and this is my favorite scene in the film and it's really stretching the definition of a little moment, but bear with me. So after Apollo Creed has been killed in the ring by the evil Russian Ivan Drago in a humiliating display that has demonstrated Ivan as like a superhuman monster, Rocky is very upset. He's lost his best friend. Things are tense with his wife. She doesn't want him to fight this guy. She doesn't think he can win. And Rocky's just so upset he's got to go for a drive. And then as he's going for a drive, we get the song, No Easy Way Out, the synth heavy electric guitar, amazing song that plays in its entirety as we get a montage of clips that are both uh, flashing back to uh, Apollo's death at the hands of Ivan Drago, their relationship, uh, Apollo's and Rocky's in the other films, Rocky's relationship to his wife, Rocky's relationship to Burgess Meredith, not sure why he's not even in the movie outside of these flashbacks so he doesn't really need to be there but whatever flashbacks to training montages and intercut with rocky just driving being like really like stoic you know and i love the scene so much and the reason i think it qualifies for the show and being a little moment is because even though it's a full scene it's entirely pointless like at first it's like okay it's like really dwelling on like rocky's you know his loss of his friend Apollo, but it's like, why are they showing all these clips of also Adrian and Rocky? Why are they showing all the training montage stuff? Why is Burgess Meredith here? Why are they showing flashbacks to when Apollo died? That was two scenes ago in this movie. We don't need to be reminded. Um, But you sit back and you're like, no, the reason why this is all here is because it's awesome. 
every single image is just in and of itself sensational. And the whole scene is pure sensation. You know, why do you get these scenes of like Rocky working out with the, that are shot in this really glossy high impact way? Because it's great because it just feels good to look at, you know, <laughs> it's just, it's just high drama. And the song is like this, this melodramatic, you know, struggle. Like if you, one of the YouTube uploads of the scene in either the description or the beginning of the video has this random like inspirational quote attached to it that's not from the movie of like success isn't what you earn it's what you attract by becoming the person that attracts success or some crap like that <laughs> this is the kind of <laughs> energy that this this scene instills just big dumb but makes you feel awesome and i also find that it is in some ways the classic word we like to use on the show a microcosm of the whole movie we're like yeah it's dumb it's shallow it's empty but it is so eager and willing to entertain you any way it can except i'm not going to say it's a microcosm because microcosm is too intellectual a word for rocky four it just <laughs> rules um and that's why it's great and also and this is maybe a hot take but of like the cheesy 80s rocky anthems this one is the best eye of the tiger sucks hearts on fire hearts yeah Hearts on Fire is a little bit better, but this is the king. No easy way out. There's wow. no shortcut home. He's thrown down What the did you just say about Eye of the Tiger, you son of a... Oh, It's bad, you, man. What do you mean it's bad? Eye of the Tiger is for, like, soccer moms to play in the minivan as they're driving their eight-year-old to go play. Like, that's, that's what Eye of the Tiger is for. <laughs> no easy way out actually gets you hyped. Wow. I can't... Okay, obviously you have never played... I the tiger on rock band with a group of friends because that uh, is the ideal experience. Sorry, I have the uh, bladder of steel achievement in rock band for playing every song in a row, no breaks. So uh, yeah, I have I've done that. I'm I don't know which I think it was rock band three. I don't even know which rock. Remember rock band? My God. Oh, I do. What a time. They'd be when better if they had no good. easy way out on the soundtrack because I don't song. disagree. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my defense of Rocky Four and this yes. gloriously stupid scene. <laughs> Well, the interesting it thing also, about Rocky Four is that I kind of think that it's almost, as far as like cultural icon iconicness, it's almost rivaling the first movie. Like people talk about Rocky Four so much, and it's so beloved by so many people. Mm -hmm. Like it really is, I think, rivaling the first Rocky in some way. It got a director's cut like last year, I think. Oh, they like, cut out the robot. They cut out the little what? robot that's like, doo -doo -doo -doo, happy birthday, Polly. They cut him what out. What the hell? Are you kidding me? Stallone's like, I don't like that anymore. But it's funny, too, you say that, Ian, because not only is it arguably almost as iconic as the first movie, but it's arguably as influential on the series now because this is the movie where Apollo Creed died. So the Creed movies have to call back to this one all the time. And the Creed films have this more grounded, more emotional, more earnest tone but they're referencing <laughs> the most purely spectacular and empty headed of them all. And really the more I think about it, the more I'm talking this through, this movie isn't just a microcosm of Rocky four. It's a microcosm of the entire American cinema of the 1980s where it's, it's it, like, seriously, like in terms of like Tony Scott and top gun or um, Adrian Lynn and like fatal attraction and stuff like that, where like movies or flash dance, probably even more accurately movies don't need to be good they don't need to have compelling stories or deep stories or complex characters. But if every image is just in and of itself powerful and sensational and uh, is put together in a glossy, high impact, sexy way, it don't matter. So in some ways, Rocky <laughs> four helped kill cinema. But on the other hand, this scene is so <laughs> awesome that I, I am I going to be upset about that? 
Is it Steven Spielberg's fault that Jaws was so good that, you know, summer movies became the dominant force on in the cinemas? No. I mean, Spielberg yes. can't be blamed. For, no, no, no. <laughs> in a sense, yes, it is his fault. Steve <laughs> can't be blamed for making a movie so entertaining that that's what everyone else thought. Yeah, this is what we should be. Rocky Four, same way. This is not me saying Rocky Four is as good as Jaws. Let me get that out right now, just so we're clear. But <laughs> I'm uh, throwing that one back yeah. in your face. Let's see. They never did Rocky fights a shark, and that was the franchise's biggest mistake. Well, I mean, with digital de-aging technology, who knows what Stallone can still do? They can make that shark look so young. It's <laughs> uh, a good joke. Well, he did play a shark not long ago. That's true. Yeah. Oh boy. Performance. No, what? I think when. Suicide Squad. Oh right. <laughs> I jumped to Shark Tale. I'm like, that was De Niro. <laughs> of course, I only think of the classics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The finest of art house cinema. Mm. Oh, I think you make a pretty good argument for... I don't know what you're arguing exactly, but... <laughs> I'm arguing it's that good. Rocky Four is awesome. <laughs> uh... <laughs> so when you watch... Everything the... about it is great. So do you feel a compelling need when you're watching a Rocky movie to watch them all? Or do you just like, are you okay just picking and choosing and watching one and leaving the rest? Good question. The last time I watched them was all as a series and I haven't watched any of them individually since. I feel like though, I mean, Rocky one is a classic, like a genuinely great movie. In fact, like it's, it's kind of like a lot of like popular movies that are also feel good. You kind of, it's, I find it's easy to like not respect them as much subconsciously but then you sit and watch it and like really watch it and it's like no this really is that great and i feel that way about the first rocky so i could probably just throw that one on any day and rocky four yeah i feel like i could just watch that by itself but the others i think i would only watch in the context of uh not counting the creed films but the other rockies i think i could only watch in the context of a marathon because i don't rocky three has some fun stuff like with uh, hulk hogan as thunderlips that's pretty good uh the ultimate man versus the ultimate meatball i like that uh, Rocky two is mostly just Rocky one, but this time he wins. So I'm not crazy about that one. Rocky five is mostly trash, but putting them together as a series, it's interesting as like a, the evolution of Sylvester Stallone in Hollywood. Um, so the uh, Rocky one and four, I can watch by themselves. Rocky two through two, three, and five, they need to be with their, their fellow series mates. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, as an outsider to Rocky, I've only seen the first Rocky and the first Creed. And none of them really, you know, lit my world on fire. Um, like I thought the first Rocky was fine. Sports movies in general don't really do anything for me. So I was like, this is just a, it's a sports movie. And I knew it so well because everything in Rocky has been so like copied and and repeated and also just permeated in culture that it's just like, mm-hmm. all right, well, I get the references now. I understand the context of Rocky, but it didn't do a lot for me. But Rocky Four is the only one of them that I like actively do want to see. I, I'll, I will watch them all eventually, but Rocky Four is the one that I'm like, that's the one I'm actually very curious about. And I feel like I'll love it unironically, like with, <laughs> with no complications. I feel like I'll just dig it because I love Dolph Lundgren so much. Oh, he's great. Yeah. If he dies, he dies. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, he's, he's the ultimate Rocky villain because like Clubber Lang, Mr. T is awesome, but you watch Rocky three and you get to that final fight and very quickly Rocky just starts winning. It's like, oh, okay, (laughs) I guess that's that. And then like Apollo is like a great character, but he's, I don't really feel comfortable labeling him a villain. Actually, the best part of Rocky two is like these scenes with Apollo where he's like 
just lost so much of his self-confidence because this no-name kid almost beat him and he's like shattered his sense of self and it's like i mm. wish rocky 2 was about him entirely mm. uh, that makes sense and then rocky 5 is just like he just fights his kid on the street or something isn't it <laughs> no there's a scene where, where rocky's kid he's like getting picked on at school and then he the, the rocky's kid beats the, the bully up and he right. goes to see his dad and he's like dad the bully tried to take my money and i kicked his ass and rocky's like that's good son try to instill um rocky how was five... this how was the sixth one rocky balboa how's that oh rocky balboa is pretty good um it's it's not like a great movie. It's not even a very good movie, but it's a very respectable sort of what was for a while end of the series. Like I like Stallone a lot in it. I like the tone. Um, movie itself's okay. Are you upset it's not called Rocky Six? Because I am. I mean, yeah. Hmm. It's not as bad as like the Rambo movies where it's like First Blood, Rambo, First Blood Part Two, Rambo Three, Rambo, and then Last Blood. But then but the Rambo movies blood, are so convoluted. It's kind of a, it's kind of its defining quality now. <laughs> how point, bad like, the titles are. You'd think at least the last one being called Last Blood. It's like that does kind of neatly tie everything up. As much as the middle is a mess. But then Stallone was asked like, "Hey, if it's successful, I'll do another one." It's like, no, Sly. This movie has one job. Rambo, some more, up. some more Last Blood. A bit more blood. Well, I'm just thinking how much more confusing like Last Blood Part Two colon Rambo Six. Seven, the awakening. Eight? I don't know, and I don't remember how many there are, even though I just listed them because there's no numbers at all, it just yeah. muddles the mind. Um, but yeah, um, I love Rocky Four. It's, uh, I feel very bad about that because it is like <laughs> it is shameless propaganda, and America is not a country that one should feel super good about, but oh, it's, oh, it's so much fun to watch. I'm sorry, I love it. Well, I'd say it beats the guilty pleasure definition then. Yeah. You've done All a right. good job there. Thank you. I'll pass it back to you. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> All right. Well, let's. I'm going to jump back into the superhero uh, realm for a bit. We're going to talk about 2005's Fantastic Four uh, from the storyteller himself, Tim Story. <laughs> As everyone calls him. <laughs> and uh we're going to talk about well the thing i wanted to mention was the bridge scene where i don't even remember what happens i actually think they caused the problem but basically like cars are just <laughs> yeah, think things do. are like exploding and cars are like falling off the bridge and basically they have to go into this whole thing to save people and so you know mr fantastic is stretching to reach for people that are falling off the bridge and human torch is like protecting people from fires because he can of course absorb the fire and the thing is like pulling cars around because that's what he can do and uh and the invisible woman is turning invisible and sneaking through people um anyway why am i talking about this scene well (laughs) here's the thing is that i don't love fantastic four but i defend it because i do think that it's kind of cheesy fun and I do think that it actually knows what it's doing. And this scene is kind of an example because one of the things that is really, really bothering me with superhero movies right now is that the powers have become less and less and less defined. And 
it's all kind of becoming this nebulous mess, right? Where just, it seems like superheroes are just, especially like DC and even, even Marvel with people like Thor and all that and Captain Marvel, where it's just, well, they're really strong and they are very durable and they don't hurt. Like that's what superheroes have kind of been siphoned down to. Whereas if you look back at Fantastic Four, and I also say the X-Men movies are really good at this, but Fantastic Four, they had very clear powers and the movie has a lot of fun just having them actually use those powers in all the different ways that they can use them. And I like the fact that these are very, four very different powers. Like one guy starts on fire and can fly around. Another guy can stretch out his body. However, um, uh, the one woman can turn invisible and the other guy is just a really strong rock creature. <laughs> it's, it's good. They're very, very clear. And the movie embraces that like the movie says okay well let's put them in situations where they can use these powers in unique ways and they can work together as a complement of each other as a team using these powers in these different ways and i just i like that because i think the superhero movies are losing that i think the early x-men movies were really great at that the fan these this fantastic four movie is really great at it uh but it's kind of falling by the wayside and now it's all like either yeah they're very strong and that's about it they can maybe fly um or they have telepathic powers that just means they can make anything float around or make anything happen they can make their uniform kind of off and on on a will like it's i don't know mm. that's i'm just venting some frustration now but <laughs> i mean the costume thing i am with you it does the way the costumes are just like magic dust does bother me yeah. I like the tactility of the suit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they're all like CGI painted over most of the time too. Mm-hmm. It's it's rare that you, when I see a behind the scenes photo of like a Marvel movie or show and they're actually wearing costumes, it, it's almost, it shouldn't be impressive, you know, <laughs> because we've been making superhero <laughs> movies for a little bit now. And you, you wouldn't think making a costume for a superhero movie would be like a big step. It reminds me of that, uh, that lion from, uh, the Oh Hello show on Broadway where they say, imagine a Broadway play exceeding your expectations by having a set. That's like, (laughs) that's like what any superhero movie feels like. What's like, Oh my God, they used a prop. (laughs) They designed the suit before they shot the scenes. Um, And I will say Ian, I, I, I do not, not only do I not like this movie, I do not respect it, (laughs) but (laughs) you make a very good case for it in terms of like uh knowing its tone and and using its ingredients effectively and i think that's fair i think this movie does have the right sort of blend of um comedy and like drama and like sort of fun with the powers without taking it too seriously what i think sinks this film and its sequel is just that they're very pedestrian in like every aspect of the filmmaking that's fair they're and I was thinking, actually, it, it ties into your point about utilizing the powers. There's that scene where Mr. Fantastic, like, immobilizes the thing. And he just kind of, like, puts him in a, um, what would the term be? Like a, a, it's like a lock from behind where you put your hands above their neck. Like and then hold. through their arms. It's not a chokehold. You're the when wrestling Chris guy, Masters man. I don't WWE know. WWE did it. It, yeah. it was called the master lock when Chris Masters did it. But, like, you put your arms, uh, your, your hands through their arms and, like, around their neck at the back. Um a half Nelson, maybe? I don't know if that's what it's called. In any event, he just does that and keeps like stretching like underneath his legs to wrap around him again. 
And it's just like vertically over and over again, as if you're re-rolling a fruit roll up. And I just think like, you know, why don't have the scene like set across like the entire space and they're like running through like different parts of it. And he's stretching around the room and keeps looping Ben in these uh, loops without him realizing and then tightening it. And then it's like, oh, wow, it was like creative and fun. But instead he just, he just does a couple rolls of the fruit roll up and that's it. Um, which I think is what sinks the movies for me, because I do agree that like, and the Fantastic Four are good for that because even just in, in concept, they have very distinct superpowers. Um, one of my favorite, uh, the what if comic series Marvel has done for years where it's just like, what if X in Marvel, there was one they did where it's like, what if each of the Fantastic Four had the same power? And it was just four little stories about if each of them had like invisibility power, if each of them had uh, stretching powers. The stretching powers is fun because half of them are just like, this is stupid. And then they just move <laughs> on. <laughs> so. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think, I think of the superhero movies of that time, it came out like what? Oh, four, oh, five. Yeah. Same year yeah, like, as Batman begins. It is, it is nowhere near as bad as something like ghost rider. I would say like, I think if you're looking for the really bad stuff of that era, it's stuff like that, like Elektra, Elektra and Daredevil, like that kind of stuff. Elektra is probably the worst superhero movie ever made. Uh, you might as far right. as like big budget, like or yeah. Amazing yeah. Spider-Man really too. cheap stuff or Amazing Spider-Man too. You. Yeah, <laughs> I dare you. I'll I'll take off my mic and I'll just I'll walk out of this interview right now. Elektra is just so boring. That's really what like, it really you know, is. I'll take stupid over boring any day. Yeah, I think. <laughs> I, I tried to watch Electra one time when I was a little less than sober and I did the same for Daredevil and Daredevil I think is a really fun ride because it's so goofy and just so out there and you know Ben Affleck's in it so there's lots of things to laugh at and um with Electra I like I started falling asleep within like 20 minutes it was kind of late at night and I had been intoxicated for a little bit and I just started falling asleep and I was just coming in and out every 10 minutes I'm like I don't know what's happening I don't know what's going on and everything I saw was like sincerely some of the worst filmmaking i've ever seen in my life just every every new image i was like wow have these people seen a movie before do they like it conceptually See, that's why fair. why make this i saw I, and, it yeah. when i was 11 years old and like that's the perfect age to like whatever dumb crap and i swear yeah. to god about halfway through i just I, and this is like the ultimate mark of sin for any superhero movie for a child i started doing my homework instead oh I was like, wow, <laughs> like this is just like a waste yeah. of my time. I might as well get something done. That was, <laughs> that was that was the beginning of my end of childhood and transition into productive worker unit where it's like, well, <laughs> might as well get something done. Yeah. Whereas yeah, the boy. Fantastic Four movies, I think they're sort of earnest enough and having more fun with the concept and not taking itself like deadly seriously. And I think Fantastic Four does work with that kind of approach like i think if they were to do well they are doing a new one um i don't know what the context of that is going to be because they have to keep thinking of new ways to make these things fit in the universe so i think they'll come up with i think the i feel like the framework of the movie will be very dumb but i hope whatever they do it is a little lighter and a little funnier because as we saw in 2015 uh, like a very dark serious fantastic four is not necessarily conducive to those characters like i don't i just don't think tonally yeah, not at all I, I just don't think like taking the concept super seriously works for that. Sure. Like, I mean, the main concept. character is named Mr. Fantastic. Like how for do you no mean? reason. 
He just well, called himself that, which I would absolutely do if I just like had superpowers one day. They're all like, I'm going to call myself the Human Torch. I'm going to call myself the Invisible One. I'm Mr. Fantastic. Well, if you look at the comic panel right before the thing gives this like mournful little speech about, and I'll be called the thing because that's what I am, a thing. And Reed's like, and I'll be Mr. Fantastic. And I'm Mr. Fantastic. <laughs> It's like, man, that's like not reading the room, which is kind of appropriate for his character, though. I mean, he's like the CEO of the building or whatever. I don't care who gives a flying crap. Like, it's so it's the Baxter building and he lives there. I don't know if I don't know how that works, to be honest. Yeah, no one does. Who cares? Company. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm going to say. I love this. How do you movie. feel, Ian, about Doctor Doom? Instead of being king of his own country, he's just Norman Osborn, but less Willem Dafoe-ish. Um, yeah, the Doctor Doom in this movie is not fantastic. Ironically, um, yeah. does, does he? Yeah, does he? I actually don't even remember. He was so bland. Did he actually own his own country in the movie? No. He no, he was just Norman The yeah. movie ends with him in a shipping crate on a boat, and it's like to Latveria, and it's like, oh, he's that's uh, the country that he's king of in the right. comics. But then in the sequel, he's just that just doesn't matter. He's the same guy um, again. Yeah. He has electricity powers for some reason. That was yeah. that was the best on interpretation. The, he's on the ship with them when they get hit with the the cosmic rays. Yeah, um, I guess they were. I I mean, from like putting myself in the mind of like a 2005 screenwriter making a comic book movie, I'd be like, oh, of course, you put Doctor Doom on the ship and he gets powers too. Like, that makes perfect sense. I get why yeah. they did that, but I feel, and, and, and it's hard to set all the groundwork of like what Latveria is. And like, a lot of that stuff was done over decades in the comics. And I think mm-hmm. I, I will be the, yeah, I don't want to ruffle any feathers, but comic book fans are kind of dumb about things sometimes. And they don't see, really seem to realize that like, what it what you are capable of doing in like 120 pages of script as opposed to decades of comics that they have chosen to memorize and that's why when it's, the term comic accuracy to me is like meaningless like that is that is a like that is a piece of non-criticism because a what comic yeah. when which version who wrote it do you know probably not <laughs> it's it's stuff like that where it's like <laughs> some sometimes i just like to whine and i feel like the biggest problems with Fantastic Four as a movie are not things they changed from the comics. No, it's more just like Tim Story really is kind of a bland filmmaker. Yeah, and very makes, pedestrian. Yeah, he makes like studio comedy tier stuff, like just like very bland studio comedy kind of stuff, mm. and it, it has that vibe. It has that kind of atmosphere, um, which is why no one likes it, except Ian. <laughs> except Ian. <the> <laughs> I don't love it. I just. Like I'm not sharing sure, it on fine. Blu-ray any now, any day, but yeah, I just think that it's, I just, I think it's unfairly maligned in film circles. That's all I'll say. It's not the worst superhero movie ever made. Yeah. I feel is... like a lot of the movies from the early two thousands or like mid two thousands, like people in retrospect, however bad they are, just kind of like lump them all together into like, they're the worst thing ever. And then the new version comes out and they can be like, see how much better this one is? This one's garbage. But like until genuine. they get references to those old movies and then the best ever. I've yeah. already <laughs> seen posts of like whoever they cast as the new Fantastic Four, they'll never be them. And it's like Jessica Alba and company. And it's like, come on. <laughs> yeah. Now, guys. Oh, yeah. Jessica Alba is a real hard screen presence to top. Famously a very <laughs> good actor who's in good movies. Yeah. Honestly, none of them are bad. They're just like, I don't I, It's weird to have like that kind of association with with. You know, I get it for like Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. Like, who's who can replace him? 
the Fantastic Four can be replaced. They could be very No, Jessica very Alba's replaced. bad. <laughs> no, she's, make no mistake. She's, she's bad. No, she's okay. <laughs> she's, she's as never, good as those movies need her to be. She's never been in a good movie on purpose. Uh, Sin City. <laughs> Terrible movie. Sin City's good. Awful. I like it. It's I fucking, like it. Cut my that. God, Ross. You I have one I, job. He cut it out. I didn't even finish my sentence. You can cut it out. I'm helping you here. No, you're making my life harder because now I have to do some editing rather than none. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh boy. Sin City is good. And I will I will stand by that until I rewatch it and reassess. But for now, I will say it's good. <laughs> um yeah. yeah, Ian, you make a you make a fair case for that. And I will say it's interesting that um, you know, you both picked a superhero movie. Um, because I was thinking something about superhero films that even when they're terrible, they are often watchable. And I was thinking about this because for the first time ever this week, I watched in full Superman four: the quest for peace. And it is very, 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 very bad, but I didn't hate it. (laughs) It's bad. And I would not recommend it, but I was like, this isn't that bad. It's somewhat watchable, which is more than I was expecting to say about Superman four: the quest for peace. Yeah, well, it's kind of a curiosity of the era in the same way that Amazing mm-hmm. Spider-Man 2 is, like Fantastic Four as well. Like, I, if you asked me, like, what would a Fantastic Four movie look like in 05? Like, that's it. Like, that's what I would picture. That's what I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Of course, it wouldn't be good. <laughs> of course, it would be, like, kind <laughs> of funny and kind of weird. And, like, the actors are trying, but, like, the weird rubber suit looks weird. And, like, they, the effects are kind of wonky and the, the villain is strange and bad because all the villains in those movies were, like, strange and bad except for Sam Raimi doing it. And even then, you know, hit and miss. So, yeah. That's a fair take. Yeah. Anyway, my point is, I just want superhero movies to bring back specific powers again. <laughs> That's all. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Like, I when I saw Shang-Chi... And I and uh, in the third act, when he gets the rings and I realized, okay, he's now just another man who can shoot lasers out of his hands. Like, yeah, we got another guy who can shoot lasers. That's every other Avenger now is just a guy who will shoot a laser or a woman who will shoot a laser. Great. Can't wait for Avengers nine where they fight the evil versions from another universe or whatever, because, you know, they're going to do that. You know, that's happening. That's definitely coming. They're doing mul- they're doing too much multiverse stuff to not be like, oh, it's evil Tony Stark. And like, uh okay. But th- th- I will say if they do evil Tony Stark, but they can't just give him a goatee. So instead, evil Tony Stark has no goatee. <laughs> I will chuckle. He should be completely <laughs> hairless. He should have alopecia. Oh, there you go. That's part there of his go. backstory. You s- I hadn't thought about that, but now that you're saying that, that is how they could easily get all these actors back, even though they're dead. And that would be like Chris Evans, and uh, I guess yeah. he's not dead. He's just in the 40s. Um, yeah. But bringing them back. As like a fun for the fans, which they might because I don't know how successful their newer heroes. Like I think Shang Chi did pretty well, but Eternals didn't, despite Ian and I really liking it. Um, Kingo, I liked Kingo. He was my favorite. <laughs> I loved Kingo. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I I never thought Ian about how specific these movies are with the powers. And now you pointed out, I respect them a tiny bit more. <laughs> well, so. there you go. My job here is done. <laughs> <laughs> and then in the second movie at the climax, they all combine their powers. So That's it's- true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs>
I just picture Ian like watching it in the theater Ranger. like, no, no, <laughs> they ruined my favorite movie. <laughs> like you said, you're not going to buy a copy on Blu-ray because why would you need two copies? I get it. <laughs> I get it. It's fine. Oh, boy. All right. I think uh, we go to your last pick and it looks like it's a doozy. I love garbage so much. <laughs> I love to torture my friends with trash. And when I think of guilty pleasures, when I think of bad movies, one movie immediately jumps to mind. And that film, not movie, that film is The Kissing Booth. I have seen a lot, an embarrassing number, frankly, of Netflix original teen rom-coms. Uh, Cause they kind of fall into two categories. You've got ones like this, which are pure fluff and just like feel like they were written by aliens. And then you've got ones about how they're all sad. And usually one of them kills themselves at the end. Like those are your two genres of like direct to streaming teen rom-coms. Um, this is obviously I prefer the fluff because I don't like watching sad teenagers kill each other or themselves. It's just, it, it isn't really, no, those movies don't really like say anything or do anything. I feel like you can learn so much about the human condition from the kissing booth and you learn so much about filmmaking mostly what not to do because the whole movie is edited like a bad youtube video down to using the default final cut pro text in like the opening scene as a graphic like you could so you know it was edited in final cut and they didn't even bother to change the font so just like off the bat this is like the first shot incredible stuff right off the bat so it's the story of l evans who is going into her junior year and her best friend's name is Lee Flynn. And Lee has an older brother named Noah, who's kind of like the hot bad boy of the school. And, and Elle has kind of had a crush on him, but her and Lee have these rules for friendship where they can never, they, and the, one of the biggest rules is like, we don't date each other's siblings. And so it was more established for her because Noah's, you know, so, so hot. And every, no, no girl can resist him because he wears leather jacket, he rides motorcycle. And so, you know, these are, I, I should say that, like this was based on a greaser. book yeah he's basically kind of like a 50s <laughs> greaser but like a 2010s piece of garbage and like he's flat out abusive in the movie like he's a very scary guy like it's it's a it all of these movies portray awful relationships that you would never wish on your worst teenage enemy like it's not healthy at all and it's the basic setup for this relationship is like he's older he's like twice her height <laughs> which is funny just on an aesthetic level and he's like very angry all the time and like very aggressive and like it's just like it's a weird energy where you're like why are you pursuing it? he has no positive qualities and then he just gets into harvard for reasons that are beyond me so i should say this movie was this film sorry was based on a book um written i actually originally published as an ebook which was written by a 15 year old so if you watch it and you're like, this feels like it was written by a teenager, in a sense, it factually was. However, an adult man turned it into a screenplay and directed it. And he's my hero. Vince Marcello is really a, an artistic hero of mine because what he was able to do um, boggles the mind. So the titular kissing booth comes into play because Lee and Elle have to think of a booth for this giant like fundraising thing their school is doing. There's a lot of misadventures. They want Noah to work the booth. They want Noah does want to work the booth. And then eventually L ends up as a performer, as, as a kiss E on the booth, not not one of the people who will be kissing. And Noah goes out 
and they end up kissing. It's a it's a beautiful, beautiful sequence. But then like immediately after, Elle's like, oh my God, I have to tell Lee. How do I break this to him? Because this is like the thing we talked about. So she goes and, and Lee has actually just kissed this new girl. So he's kind of hanging out with this girl. So she goes over and tells him this and he gives her a look like he's going to strangle her, which is really a, a phenomenal moment of film. And so... L, yeah, they kind of laugh it off. They're like, okay, so obviously nothing's going to happen. We got our rules, whatever. And Lee says the line, and it's been burned into my head since the first time I watched it. I've seen this movie upwards of 25 times. Um, <laughs> like easily. I've watched this movie over and over again. I've seen the sequels each like five times a piece. Like easily, easily. I show everyone this movie. Anyone who's important to me has seen this movie with me. No offense, Dan. Uh, <laughs> we'll get there one day we'll get there one day when we're when we're in the same city again dan i'm gonna do this to you you deserve this so it's a lot going lee, on yeah so lee <laughs> so lee says the line just don't go grinding coochies with my brother or i'll never talk to you again so you hear that and your brain jumps to like you know great tragedies and just great you know just the worst things you get you're like who what who would say that because the thing about these movies is that sex is often like a a very secondary factor because it's more about the love right it's more about having a boyfriend than any of like the actual practical physical of not in the kissing booth oh oh no in the kissing booth these children characters have sex a lot that is accepted as just like a part of their relationship there's a whole montage there's a long, quite a long montage about them just having sex. The when it's when it's revealed and Lee finds out. Spoiler alert! I'm sorry. When it's revealed, it comes out. He's like, um, it's one of the few f bombs they drop in the movie, and like, it's really kind of like harsh and sudden. Like it's they start treating it very seriously. Like when you dropped an f bomb on this show, I would never do such a thing, <laughs> and there's no evidence of that. <laughs> that was for emphasis. This is for. Power, you know, the raw cinematic <laughs> human emotion of the moment where Lee finds out about Ellen Noah. So, it, it like, I just can't really. It kind of the fact that sex is such a present part of the story and yet is still treated with such like the through the lens of like a child's eyes is so like it, it's it's one of the most interesting things about the movie to me. Where like you're like this is a movie for teenagers written originally by a teenager and it has the same fantastical elements like the Flynn family is obscenely rich and lives in this enormous like palatial mansion right on the beach of California like it's insane how much money they have and the jobs they appear to and and (laughs) his mom is like yeah I'm a realtor in movie number three it's like okay so I guess your dad is just an independent billionaire (laughs) because there's no way that he would just be living there's no security in the house either it's insane and I, I just think that's like in a genre that is often very sexless for the sake of the audience and also just like kind of the tone of the genre to have this one where it's so sent like throughout all three movies sex is a concern like an active concern and so i think it's interesting that the movie actually takes the time to engage with that and yet when the idea is introduced it is phrased with this bizarre inhuman speech where it's you know who would ever say don't go grinding coochies with my brother. Can you picture a context in which that would ever be okay for a human to say to another human outside of perhaps like an enhanced interrogation sequence? It's, it's the kind of thing it's, you know, it's, it's sort of like, it's like running just like, 
I don't know. What would it be like to wrap barbed wire around your own face? You know, <laughs> I know it's watching the kissing booth for the 18th time. And you that line that you don't like it, Ross. I didn't know. No, this is actually one I will like say passionately. I love this movie. I, without any complications, without any irony, I think this is genuinely one of the best movies ever made because <laughs> what other movie captures such a total, uh, a snapshot of humanity you sure. know it, it's it's what it feels like to be a teenager um nothing is correct everything is stupid and cartoonish it's it's a it's a fantasy and a nightmare together and i feel best embodied by the line just don't go grinding coochies with my brother the most nightmarish piece of dialogue outside of david lynch's filmography <laughs> well this raises an interesting question in the yes. context of the show which film has the more uh unhinged view of sexuality made for teenagers the kissing booth or heavy metal because you talk about yin and yang you know they're both these juvenile fantasies that seem to exist in their own separate universes um and who would have thought i wouldn't have expected the kissing booth to have more sex than heavy metal but the way you're speaking yeah. about it i think it might and it's not unintelligent about it because part of the montage is you see l buying condoms Really, And that is something I have never seen in any teen rom-com. And again, I have seen an embarrassing amount. I've never seen one of your leads purchasing condoms. Even though that's a very, that's a very practical part of having sex. And a part of the montage too is like, she's buying it at like a pharmacy and she turns around like his mom is there. It's like, oh yeah. Like that's the kind of nightmare scenario. Like that, that is one of the, sure. I think a genuinely like actually kind of fun moment, like unironically a really fun moment in that movie where you're like, oh yeah, that is like, unique to this scenario and the fact that so many of these movies don't even touch that stuff and this movie is overt and like sex positive in a way that feels i don't know i wouldn't say it's like reassuring but it's like kind of nice to, to that they don't, they don't demonize it they don't and they also don't treat it because um the other ones that got trilogies like the the to all the boys trilogy the idea of having sex doesn't come up until like the third movie normally you want like in these kind of teen rom-coms you want like a relationship established you want to make sure like these are our two characters and they've been tested and they're in love yeah. and now they're it's doing this yeah. yeah when the reality i think most people who have sex as teenagers rarely true love um might be perceived that way at the time but in in uh in <laughs> in hindsight i think most people would not describe it as that also the first time they have sex it is under the hollywood sign Need I say more? <laughs> I mean, what more can be said? And I mean, also, right? Because you know how there's a fence around the Hollywood sign, right? Like in reality. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Not I'll in this movie. So. They're right under the H. They're like right <laughs> under the letter. And the green screen is phenomenal. Oh, it's, man. it's, it's beyond. In the you third movie. They didn't actually yeah. film at the Hollywood sign. Uh, yeah, somehow. No. In the third movie, they actually break up underneath the Hollywood sign. It's like, I, I cried. I All comes full Look. circle. I did cry while watching Kissing Booth 2 and 3. I'm not ashamed to admit that. Um, You've admitted I should it multiple be. times. Yeah, I've only met yeah, you tonight, but I already know that you wouldn't be ashamed by that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's on my YouTube channel, like video yeah. evidence of this. So. If you're buying groceries, it's like, that'll be $7.50. I cried at Kissing Booth 2 I'll have 3. you know, ma'am. <laughs> speaking of speaking of $7.50, at the seven-minute mark, 50 seconds. Yep, yeah. that was when the first tear struck yeah. my cheek. Yeah. Um, <laughs> certainly cool. not the last <laughs> yeah i was you know it's funny like i've seen your videos on these movies um 
and I, I don't know if it just didn't register with me, but I didn't realize until you're quoting the line how um, sex is like part of the films. And it, it does, I will say, it is very weird to me that like originally written as a novel by a 15 year old. I'm like, am I gonna, am I on like a watch list because I watched this movie? You know, these are the questions that one, one uh, has to ask themselves. Um, Cause that is strange. I don't know. There's maybe something even unethical about that. Maybe like just not even the, the sexual aspect of it, but it's like something that someone wrote when they were 15. I guess teenagers will write songs that'll be, they'll be like musicians, but something about a novel feels a little bit more like, don't let them publish that. Let them <laughs> wait mean, a couple years and write a couple more drafts. I mean, you got to respect, respect Beth Regals. Cause like she got the bag. She wrote For some sure. stupid ebook when she was 15 and turned in like got it published as like a legit book and turned into a Netflix original series, a series of films, a trilogy. She wrote like two more books as well. I think just off the off the success of it, because like why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you fart out two more yeah. drafts of they just we're, we want to make more movies? But okay, I would, just that. I would do that. I would do that like the movie review blog I wrote when I was fourteen. Six months later, I was doing like the new Siskel and Ebert. And I'm like this teenager who has no knowledge of anything <laughs> like that's. And that to me is nightmarish. I'm yeah. glad that I didn't make YouTube videos until I was like 19 or 20 for, for the first time. It's like, yeah. Okay. I had a couple well, years to get my yeah. stupid thoughts out. Yeah. Well, the, the film, I think, maintains that sense of just sort of knowing nothing about how anything works. And every time I watch it, like it's the kind of thing where I, like, I basically have the movie memorized but there are so many times where something will be said or something will happen. And I just think like an adult wrote this, like presumably at least two drafts. We can be generous and say at least two drafts are written. I, the sequels are superior in my opinion. The sequels like are structured more like actual movies. I think just because it's based on a 15 year old's Wattpad fic you know, like it, it has no structure. It has no direction. Things just kind of go until the conflict needs to happen. And like, you can assume that whoever, uh, well, uh, you can assume the author probably read some like story structure outline or learned about that in her English class and was like, okay, well, I put this here and this here and this here and this here and I'm done. There's my story. You know, we've all done that. When we're teenagers writing stuff and like our, our early work. And, you know, I, I would, if I could make millions of dollars, millions might be generous. If I could make any amount of money, any numerous amount of thousands of dollars off some crap I wrote as a teenager, I would absolutely do it. And that would be part of the marketing. <laughs> <laughs> this is garbage. Buy it. <laughs> I mean, the only other example I can think of is like Sucker Punch was allegedly a script Zack Snyder wrote when he was 14. And you can tell. You can tell. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen it since it came out, but that was definitely my impression as I watched that. Um, it has its fans, though. Like every basically every movie we've talked about that we're like oh guilty pleasure except maybe kissing booth because it's too recent but me um, i'm its fans it's me but it's like it's it's like this reclamation like fantastic four has been reclaimed as like genuinely good amazing spider-man 2 and i've seen it for sucker punch so maybe in 10 years you will have more kissing booth cultists who are like these were actually really uh intricate thoughtful studies of teenage relationships and they deserve more respect well, that's the thing is, I think the ending of the third movie is genuinely very good because, you know, you go through, you go through these movies and it, the uh, the To All the Boys trilogy was actually like a direct mirror of this where the, all those three movies are basically structured the same. 
in terms of like senior year and moving on and stuff is the third one. The middle one is like, we're having problems in our relationship because there's another cute boy I might want to kiss. Like that's as complicated as it gets. But to all the boys, three ends on this note where, you know, despite everything we've been through, we're going to stay together, even though the relationship is horrible. They don't seem to even like each other, let alone love each other. And at the end of Kissing Booth 3, they break up like at the end of Act 2 and you're like, okay, they're going to come back together. They're going to graduate high school, go to the same college. And no, they break up. And the end of the movie is them like meeting up five years later. Like they've gone through college. They're like working adults now. And they're talking they're like, yeah, you know, like we we were kids and that was that was just a part of our lives. And like we can be friends now. There's there's some distance there. And like we let this consume us then. But like we still care about each other. It's like genuinely a very heartwarming ending. So I think of all of them out there, like Kissing Booth genuinely does have some really good for as much stupid crap is in there. And there is a lot. And Kissing Booth, too, is like an unforgivably dumb movie but i think one in three do have these little just little pinpricks of light shining through the crap tapestry the crapistry if you will and you, you can see the promise like the the attempt is genuinely there um even if none of the actors seem to care by movie three <laughs> and it's it's just like it's weirdly sentimental for a series that's been going on for like two years that no one except me in the world likes. So it really worked for me. Again, I, I do wonder <laughs> if I was just the target demographic for the whole trilogy because it ticks all my boxes. Um, I'm probably going to watch it again tonight. Honestly, I'm already kind of feeling it. I could have a whiskey and just like watch Kissing Booth again. It's been a while. It's been a, too long. It's been like a couple How long months. has it been? A couple. Okay. Here's the thing. <laughs> when you say you've seen this film like upwards of 25 times, According to my letterbox, like my most watched film of any is nine times. And these are for like the, my favorite films in the world. Yeah. Nine. And this is one of my favorite films in the world. So I'm I, not, I'm not getting your argument here. <laughs> 25 is a lot. That's, that's my, a lot. I, I'm just, that's not even an argument. It's just a statement about numbers. 25 is a lot. Well, the thing is I would watch it. Like the first time I watched it, I was like, I need to see this again. Like I need to make sure that what I just saw was real. So I watched it again. And then I just started, like, I would have, I would just like invite people over like one friend at a time. Like we're going to sit down and watch this. And I did that like for like 20 people. Like I just did. It. And then like at parties or whatever, if we were all like really just having a great time, like let's throw on, Hey, let's, throw on the let's ruin bed. everything. <laughs> let's have a, let's have a better time and learn a little bit about love. Learn a little bit about safe sex and, you know, learn a lot about kissing this. Well, it was good for you to teach your friends those lessons in their mid to late 20s. Early, very early 20s. Let's be. Right, let's let's not forget. Let's not forget who's the young one here. This is true. I will not have this taken away from me. Well, maybe as you mature, <laughs> you'll realize this film isn't that good. I think it's just going to get better like a fine wine. Most you know? wines don't actually age well. They have like a brief window and then they get worse. Yeah. And most movies don't either. This one will. Well. That's okay, so here's the thing, and you'll I think you'll be happy with this, Ross. So a while back I made a I made a promise to myself that any movie that gets featured on the show that I haven't seen before, I write on a list and I gradually work my way through the list to see it. So now you are making me have to actually watch the kissing booth at some point. You just you can't do it sober, is the only rule. It's like Dazed and Confused. I've never watched that I movie want to. and I never will. <laughs> I refuse. Why, why would you? What will you get out of it? There's nothing. You just, you, it's, it's, it's there for a ride. It's a roller coaster. 
It's a theme park, like the Marvel films, as important to culture. <laughs> well, thanks for the advice. I'll take that under advisement. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. The harder, the better, um, drug-wise. So, yeah, I guess those are uh, our collection of guilty pleasures. Um, quite the range, I would say. I yeah, love superhero definitely. stuff, but... yeah. Yeah. Um, have we learned anything about ourselves in this process? My taste is so good. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I think what my guilty pleasures might reflect about me is that um, I really am just a fan of spectacle for its own sake, as long as that spectacle is genuinely, uh, I don't know, like excessive and and it feels suitably large scale because, you know, no matter how dumb Rocky four gets, as long as it, it keeps hitting me with those bangers, I don't mind. So I don't know, just my, my enthusiasm for aesthetics, I think shines through. Hmm. You, you don't think fantastic four has good aesthetics. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> now I'll co-sign on that one. <laughs> it's not very good. Moana looks good though. Yeah. Moana looks amazing. Yeah. Amazing Spider-Man 2 looks pretty good. It's a good look. It's uh, a good looking movie. Rewatch it. It's a good looking movie. It might be one of the worst movies of worst looking movies I've ever seen. I won't lie. What? Yeah, I I think Spider-Man 2 is like a hideous hodgepodge. (laughs) What? Come on. I mean it's it's colorful, but it's colorful in the same way that if like you melted a bunch of crayons and poured them into a bucket, it would be colorful. (laughs) That's it. That is Spider-Man 2 in a nutshell. I don't know, man. I would I would take you look at the visuals of like No Way Home, and I'm like, like you side by side any shot from Amazing Spider-Man Two and No Way Home, and like Amazing Spider-Man Two will take it. Yeah, one has no color, one has all the colors. Yeah, I'll take it's a dumb comic book movie. I don't care. Yeah, I just but, want it to be pretty. <laughs> I'm not asking for, you know, the uh, shot composition is nice. Like the yeah. the framing is nice. It looks expensive, which so many of these movies rarely do. It actually looks like the Oscorp sets like look kind of interesting. The CGI, like when it's all CGI environments, it's like it's just like blue or whatever. But uh, I think like the the shots of people walking and talking look genuinely very nice, and that's what Mark Webb actually cared about in that movie. And you can tell. (laughs) I don't really remember. (laughs) Well, you're missing out. Having a headache and. Not every movie can be as aesthetically perfect as the Kissing Booth. I'm sorry. Or, or Rocky Four. Yeah. But, you know, two equally good Stallone, movies. If Stallone directed Amazing Spider Man 2, amazing. <laughs> I, mean, I wish. You know I'm right. You know I'm right. Yeah. Um, Stallone should direct like any movie that we've talked about today. Frankly, any movie that you've ever talked about mm-hmm. would be improved by Stallone just being put in that director's chair and just seeing what he would do. I mean, I think so. I think it'd be worth It's an experiment we're seeing. Stallone remakes the canon. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I'm with you, Ian, on Amazing Spider-Man uh, 2. Uh, sorry, Ross. That's all right. <laughs> but in Fantastic Four are interesting examples of the two opposite sides of ugly-looking superhero films, one that has no style, <laughs> one that also has no style, but in a really garish and extra way. There we go. Mm. So. It's all right. I know I'm right. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I suppose we'll probably close out, Ian, unless you, you have anything else. Yeah. Nope, I think we're good. Cool. Uh, Ross, you want to share your share plug away on your YouTube channel and 
Tell uh, yeah, sure. Uh, my YouTube channel is my name, Ross McIntyre. I kind of just do whatever pops into my head at this point. I used to do movie discussion. Probably still going to do some of that, just less frequently. Just kind of talking about stuff, doing fun little edits, going to do some shorts. We're switching things up. We're trying new things. It's an exciting new frontier. Nice. nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, Ross, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thank you for having me again. Yeah. It was a, I think it was a fitting topic for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you ever, if you ever, if you ever find yourself discussing more classics of this ilk, I, I would love to come back. I have perfect. I have pages upon pages of thoughts. It's good that we're cutting off now because I could talk about the kissing booth for literally hours. <laughs> and I have um, at least once in my life. I'm I'm single and I don't know why. <laughs> I thought there was gonna be a <laughs> nope. final part to the that end. Story, <laughs> and that ain't that just representative of my whole and there's your microcosm of my life <laughs> you thought there'd be yeah. more to it than it just trailed off sadly yep every ex- all comes back together every romantic oh. experience i've ever had right on all right everybody <laughs> well let us know what your um, favorite guilty pleasure movies are tweet at us at cinema underscore seconds and thanks for listening i've been ian and i've been daniel and we'll see and you I'm next time ross <laughs> I did it again. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry.